Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast. I have uh, Shmuel Liederman, PhD. He's part of the Weiss Livnat Center for Holocaust Research at Haifa University in Israel. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, participatory democracy today. So Shmuel, thank you for coming. Thank you for uh, having me on. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you got to be studying what you're studying right now. And then I want to talk to you about what you're working on currently. Yeah, so um, I did my PhD at the University of Haifa. My dissertation focused on Hannah Arendt's political thought. I don't know if your uh, your audience uh, know Hannah Arendt, but she was a, a major mid-20th century political theorist, a German uh, Jew who escaped from Nazi Germany uh, shortly after the Nazis came to power, and then she uh, immigrated to the United States. And she quite quickly became a major political theorist, and she she remains quite influential, influential to this day. And my focus was on an aspect in a political theory that I believe remains neglected to this day, which is her support for 
participatory democracy, namely a form of democracy in which citizens are much more active in actual decision making uh, on the issues that concern them. And that's that's a vision she draws. I, I mean, there is a tradition of participatory democracy that precedes Arendt, but I think she adds her own unique contribution to it. Uh, so this is what I focused on in my dissertation, and I've been uh, publishing quite a bit about it, including a book of mine that came out in 2019. And, uh, and of course, my research also extended to other thinkers and areas, including genocide studies. So this is kind of Along with political theory, this is another field of interest of mine. And sometimes I connect those two together and sometimes I keep them separated. But uh, in a way, both lead me to uh, this uh, interest and support in participatory democracy. So what does a participatory democracy look like? What's an example or two that you've seen? Well, there are different forms of participatory democracy. So uh, you could you, you you could find at least calls for participatory democracy, for example, in the United States in the 60s. And, and there are still some some local experiments in participatory democracy, especially in the global south. But my major interest is in a tradition of participatory democracy called the council system. The council system is a kind of a vision of a radically participatory democracy, one, that, one in which there is a kind of a pyramid of citizen councils uh, up from the neighborhood level and uh, up to the, the par- a parliament, uh, basically a parliament that is made out of, uh, a, a delegates from the, um, from the lower councils, which it, it basically replaces in, at least in the, in the vision, potentially it replaces the kind of democracy we are familiar with today, representative democracy based on election, that at least what it was meant to be. And it came out of the, uh, socialist and anarchist movements of the, of the, 20th century, but I think, and of course, it had to be kind of um, adjusted to modern politics, obviously. But I think it's a very interesting vision. This, this is why uh, that that remains my main interest. But well, what do you mean that uh, the, in the example you gave, the, all the people were elected, but the lower house would participate in decision making of the upper house, or you know, what do you so mean in, specifically? In the, in the most radical vision, imagine that we, we don't have kind of universal elections, right? Instead, we have in each neighborhood, for example, there is the council of citizens. So every citizen that wants to participate simply goes to this council and then they, they debate, they deliberate, they, they act together on matters that concern their neighborhood. And then they send a they send their representative, a delegate to an upper council, for example, the municipal council. And they, they make the decision on everything that has to do with, you know, the concerns of the municipality and so on and so forth up to the level of, of the parliament. So the parliament, instead of, instead of being elected by, by a vote, is elected by this kind of pyramid of delegates. Now, it has all sorts of, you know, uh, problems with it. It's not that I would recommend this kind of democracy. But the very fact that we used to have this kind of a radical vision of participatory democracy, let's say it, it, it's on one end of a spectrum along which you can find all, for, all kinds of forms of participatory democracy up to some combination of a parliament elected by a vote and, say, in the context of the United States, a president that is elected by a vote. And also, uh, say, in your example, for example, lower house that is made out of delegates of those councils. So there is a spectrum there that we can play with. 
but I'm, I'm personally I'm interested in the, the kind of more radical visions and what people had in mind when they, for example, Hannah Arendt, which when she advocated such radical visions of what democracy could and should look like. In the example you gave, what were some of the problems with that particular type? Do you have uh, information about that? Yeah, so, so for example, one, one problem is that only those citizens who want to be active, I, I mean, many citizens either because perhaps they, they vote too much or they are less interested in politics, they wouldn't have their vote casted, right? Only the citizens that are active and go to the council and then some of them elected as delegates to the upper council, only them would actually have a voice in the decision making. And that, that's obviously a problem because Theoretically, at least, we want every citizen to have a voice in, you know, the affairs that concerns, uh, that concern all of us. Now, actually, you know, if you look at our democracy, for the most part, I mean, most democracies, the, the extent of the vote, I mean, the, quite a bit of, of the citizens do not vote, right? They don't use their right to vote. So there are also problems in, in our, many problems are in our contemporary systems of representative democracy, but, but personally, I wouldn't advocate a system in which, you know, there is no vote, there is no vote. Some, some kind of a mixed democracy in which citizens vote and at the same time, through this pyramid of councils, they can participate in actual decision making. Some combination, I would support something like that. I can give you, actually, if you want yeah. a contemporary example, kind of roughly contemporary example. So if you look, for example, in a city called, it's actually a huge metropolis called uh, Porto Alegre in Brazil. I start from the, starting from the early 90s, they experimented with a kind of a local participatory democracy, but Porto Alegre is something like uh, 1.5 million citizens, residents. So they experimented with something called participatory budget, which means that along the lines of this pyramid of councils that I mentioned before, they discussed the kind of priorities they wanted to set with regard to how to, ex- how to spend the municipal budget. For example, how much to spend on uh, the sewage system, how much to expend on uh, running water, how much to expend on health, and so, how much to spend on health, and so on and so forth. Now, there was the mayor uh, who was voted into office. Right, the mayor of Porto Alegre. At the same time, the, the, uh, there were those citizen councils in Porto Alegre, and they eventually the kind of priorities they set came to the mayor, and he had to decide on them. But once the citizens themselves, or many citizens in Porto Alegre, were the ones who actually set those priorities, the mayor felt that he had to consider them very seriously. So in in so basically implemented what the citizens themselves suggested, and actually we can find in Porto Alegre a huge improvement in everything that concerns you know the lives of ordinary citizens in terms of the accessibility to health, in terms of the accessibility of simply running water because we are talking about a lot of uh, poor neighborhoods in Porto Alegre. So that's one example, quite a successful one. We have also many failures, but one example of the way you can combine an elected representative democracy and the form of participatory democracy made out of cities and councils. So that would be, I think, a good example. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. 
please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What's an example of this form failing and why? What can we learn from the failures of it? So, for example, say, I mean, in, in some places we see that, again, only only uh, a minority, a tiny minority of the citizens actually, in some places, take part in those councils. So that means that the, the vast majority of the citizens do not actually have a voice. Or, say, if we have uh, patriarchal societies in which we find in those councils only men, that's a problem. Or we find only the dominant group participating. That's a problem. Uh, or we, if you find that this whole council thing, this whole council pyramid, it just, you know, it, it's a, a, a tool by the politicians to gain legitimacy for the decision they already want to make or if they simply ignore them. So there are all kinds of such experiments because... I mean, there were at some point uh, in the early 2000s, there were actually some 1,500 such experiments in participatory budgeting throughout the world. And many of them, I would say, they ended up uh, failing because of, for example, for those reasons I mentioned before. Uh, but the case of Porto Alegre as well as some other cases. Uh, we can give, for, I can give, for example, the, uh, the state of Kerala in India, where they experiment with, with a similar form of participatory democracy, we find there mostly improvements in the lives of ordinary citizens, which is, I think, you know, the main thing we want to see is, uh, you know, the way we allocate our resources and so on. So, so again, on probably on every... So what, what, would this, what would this look like in modern day, you know, would it, what levels do you think it could be successfully tested at or what levels do you think it would work at and which levels do you think it wouldn't? I mean, I think we really need to think in terms of experiments. So right now, I wouldn't go for you know a whole country that experiment with this form of democracy, but I would definitely try more and more uh, experiments with local democracy. And it can be in small cities and big cities. In the state of Kerala, for example, that I mentioned, we are talking about millions of people who experimented with uh, who were part of this experiment. So I would start with you know big and small cities and try to learn from the results and the problems that emerge uh, from this experiment and try to improve them uh, until we get a better sense of how this could work, what kind of combination we can create between uh, participatory democracy and the more traditional elected democracy, uh, representative democracy. Uh, so at, the, at this point, I would experiment in the, you know, in the more long term. I would say if we could manage to do something like that on the level of a entire country, I think that can have many advantages, but it's still a long-term vision. I mean, it's obviously, you don't want to play with the lives of people in, in, in that uh, way. So so experiments on the local level, it's something I would... Uh, well, what are some of the unexpected you know, consequences of doing it the way you described? Like in the example you have, you said one affects several million people. What are some of the good and bad consequences that, again, they didn't expect... I don't know if there's a write-up on what happened or, you know, it's ongoing, but what have you observed? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Okay, so so uh, let's start with the good uh, consequence or the good results. So we find, so one, one result, one positive result I already mentioned is that we find that 
the politicians or, or in more institutional terms, the, um, the budget, okay, which is the main issue in every kind of politics. The budget becomes much more attentive to the concerns of uh, the majority of the citizens. Uh, and especially the poorest, if you conduct this experiment well, you can also give more voice to minority groups, uh, such as uh, minority in terms of their number or their power in society, for example, women, for example. Uh, let's say in India, the, the Dalit, the untouchable, uh, and so on. So, so one thing is which kind of concerns the budget actually addresses. And once you have the citizens themselves making the decision, they tend to prioritize their concerns rather than, you know, some concerns that the politician has in mind. And uh, that's useful. That can make a huge difference in the lives of people. Beyond that, once you have to actually discuss what we should spend our money on, our collective money on, among different citizens who come from different positions, different neighborhoods, and so on, you you need to get familiar. You become more familiar with the concerns of your fellow citizens. And you also practice, you know, like every other activity we try to learn, it's a lot about practice. And the more I think, the, and this is what I think we also see from the empirical experiment and I was mentioning what we see is that the more you participate in this kind of discussions, the more you become, uh, you learn how to be more attentive. Uh, you learn how to listen to your fellow citizens. So we, it's a kind of a civic virtue that citizens learn through this kind of participatory democracy. And, and beyond that, you know, whenever we talk about even very material things like, you know, the way we uh, allocate our budget, we also have to deal with questions of justice. Is it more just to spend money now on accessibility to, to health or is it more just to uh, spend money on, say, uh, promoting uh, education? I mean, and you have only a limited amount of budget. So you have to practice your judgment. You have to deal with questions of justice and morality. And I think in terms of morality and justice, it's also very much a question of practice. I mean, the more you think about those questions, the more uh, the more you, you have to decide based on this kind of value judgment, you become, it's not that you get any kind of final answer, what is the just thing to do, but you become more adept at thinking in terms of those questions and getting familiar with the complex dilemmas that are involved. And I think that's also part of, what uh, a good society should should be concerned with that its citizens have this ability to consider uh, this kind of uh, things about questions of justice and uh, a fair, what a fair society looks like and so on. And people also uh, become uh, they they understand the reality better. They understand better what is going on in in. Well, in for sure. So how, how are people chosen to be in these advisory or you know? these different positions, if not for elections or if for elections, how are they chosen differently? So, for example, through it might be, I mean, sometimes a lot of people suggest uh, kind of sortition or lottery as, as a way of choosing those people. So you have this neighborhood council in which, you know, citizens come, uh, residents of the neighborhood come voluntarily and then they simply cast a, a, a lot. I mean, they, they uh, kind of randomly choose who of them will go up to the upper council as delegate or representative of the neighborhood council. Now, I would say that, you know, within the council, you can definitely have elections, right? I mean, you uh, become part of a, a debate, a liberation, 
with your fellow citizens and, and you kind of uh, identify at least several people who you might trust more than others, trust their judgment, trust their ability to uh, represent your interests and so on. And you, uh, and you have an election and you choose, and you choose the majority, choose uh, those who, um, the person or the persons they believe will represent them best. Uh, so it might either be by lottery, a sortition, or, or so which is kind of random, or it can be by by election within the council. Both ways are definitely legitimate in my view. That's the way you can elect people. You can right, but people. what is the nuance of of uh, you know sortition versus elections versus maybe choice by other council members? Like, what are the different types of the uh, ways that someone can be chosen and what are some of the positives or negatives of them as you see? So to understand that, I think we should better kind of take a step back and, uh, and ask ourselves why, why, why in any case we should have uh, a kind of participatory democracy rather than, you know, representative or a pure representative democracy in which representatives are elected to office by kind of universal vote or something like that. And, the problem is that, and this is the traditional problem that many political theorists, and at least until the 19th century, recognize, is that once you have a once you have an election, naturally those who would be voted to office, those who, uh, which uh, those whom the, the citizens will elect, are the most no- notable members of the society, which tend to be the rich. This is why traditionally the kind of democracy we have was perceived to be not a democracy, but an anti-democratic regime, a kind of oligarchy or aristocracy. In any case, not a democracy, because it was obvious. I mean, we kind of forgot that, but it was obvious to most political theorists until the uh, 19th century that, again, a form of democracy in which we elect a representative by universal vote would tend to bring to office their, the richest people. And in a way, I think we can see this dynamic in our contemporary democracies as well. Uh, I mean, people vote to those they know. So they would vote for a Trump. They would vote for a Biden. They would vote for someone who is recognized in society. And again, they tend to be the rich. And if not the rich, they tend to be part of a kind of a party machinery that makes them make them famous. So, so basically, the form of what we talk about, what we talk about as democracy today used to be thought of as as an anti-democratic regime because of the dynamic that I think persists to this day. Now, we kind of reconceptualize what democracy means. Uh, and maybe the only legitimate form of democracy or, or the only form of democracy possible, but we still have this dynamic of an anti, uh, basically an anti-democratic dynamic. Now, lottery originally, say, in the first democracy in the world, right, ancient Athens, uh, they chose people not by election, but by lot, by, by lottery. Uh, because then uh, each citizen had the right, had the, had the chance to be voted to office. And they did that because they understood the dynamic of elections and they wanted a democracy. So they chose a different mechanism of bringing people to office, of, uh, of choosing people who uh, represent them. And they did that because they, uh, they had a, a more radical, I would say, a more radical understanding of what equality means. They thought that you can't be an equal citizen if you don't participate in what Aristotle called rule and being in, in rule and being. So, if you at some point in your life are not also a representative, a politician, some a statesman, someone who actually takes an active part in government, 
unless each citizen had at least the opportunity to do that, you can't call it neither a democracy nor an, a, a, a regime in which citizens are equal. So that that's the advantage of lottery, that it gives each one a chance, an equal chance, because it's random, an equal chance to take to, to make the, the actual decision uh, as opposed to election. Now, again, there are also problems with lottery. I mean, if, if your choice is totally random, obviously you can have people in government that are incompetent, right? Now, it, happen, it, happens, it happens with the deliberate precision nowadays. Why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. So, so definitely, I mean, there are, again, advantages and disadvantages in, in each of the systems. This is why I mean, I think some combination of both, I mean, the one and having this mechanism in which each one has an equal vote, uh, equal, equal voice in the sense that each of us has the right to, uh, to vote. Uh, and at the same time, there is a, a space, you know, an actual opportunity to take an active part in in decision-making, some combination of that, and, and probably the only form, not the only form I can think of, but but I think it necessitates some kind of citizen councils, even if we don't call it this way, but some some space in which citizens can gather and, and take part in actual decision-making. So some combination of that would be, again, my recommendation. Has any, has a company ever tried this when they run their board and they elect their people by sortition, or has this, you know, any... Corporations have tried any of this? Well, we do have uh, what is called the cooperative uh, uh, movement, which is quite a big movement around the world. Council eludes uh, uh, Mondragon in Spain, if the audience want to uh, Google Mondragon in Spain. So so basically, we have those companies in which they be, they are basically run by the workers themselves, the workers in the company rather than some you know, uh, managers and so on. So they have some kind of mechanism in which not necessarily each worker, but at least some of the workers find themselves in, in some point in, in the position of uh, the manager and so on. So it's it's not exactly a council system, but it's uh, it's a kind of participatory working place. And they also insist that you know the, the wage gaps between you know the upper echelon in the company and the lower echelon, the lowest echelon would be uh, limited instead of what we have in you know, the free market, so-called free market today. So we have experiment that not experiment we have companies that uh, that kind of reminiscent of, of what we were talking about but it's uh, there are other complications when it when it comes to you know to to a kind of uh, financial not necessarily financial but economic company how to motivate people uh, with more fit to run things than others it's kind of a different field in our lives like yeah but you are, still have all the same pressures and you know motivations and everything to run a company. So why would it be different if, you know, some of the people well, that, that run it at uh, sortition-based? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, we can definitely, and, and actually, I mean, the, the whole idea of the conscious system I mentioned, I mean, one of its main motivations was the idea that those who work in, back then, it was those who work in the factory should own the factory. And the the implication is that they should, when they should run the company, they, they should run the factory and they should, uh, take the decisions over what is, you know, how we invest our money and so on. So originally, the whole participatory democracy was no less than about democracy. It was about democracy in the workplace and workers' ownership of their of the factories they work on, they work in, and, and the uh, the companies they work in. So definitely there are similarities. That said, though, I think it's different. 
I mean, again, this ran through the traditional political thought that um, you need, often you need different skills to run a company than to uh, discuss political issues. The kind of judgments you need to employ are quite often different. It, it arguably, arguably, uh, the kind of skills you need for democratic decision making are more equally divided among ordinary citizens than the kind of skills you need to run a company. That's definitely a debatable contention, but but I think it has some truth in it, or at least we'll have we have to consider whether it's true and what the, what does it mean for attempts to to do participatory democracy in the workplace. I think there are different challenges in some in some in some ways. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Shmuel, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Uh, you can, <laughs> Academia EDU, you know, the place where I and many other academics, uh, we put our articles and, and ideas and so on. So Academia EDU, Shmuel Lederman, you can find me there. Yeah, that's, that's probably the best place. Well, very good. Shmuel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.